Hi, this is John Arhand, and welcome to another episode of LaserCast, a program devoted to everything LaserDisc, and I mean everything LaserDisc. I mean, LaserDisc was not just a movie format. It was not just a format for watching movies. LaserDisc was the first multimedia format, the first widely available optical disc multimedia format capable of storing thousands of images, full motion video, multiple audio tracks. And so LaserDisc had many applications. It had the commercial application of selling movies to the general public, just like they'd sold records, just like MCA had sold records to to people. Oh, let's sell movies to people. But also there were industrial uses. There were uses in education. You could put a, a catalog on a LaserDisc. A car company or an aeronautics company could put some kind of service manual on a LaserDisc. And LaserDiscs were also used in nonlinear video editing. Very early, primitive, early 1980s nonlinear video editing systems. Today, we're going to discuss one such system. And there actually were multiples. There were multiple systems which were attempting to use LaserDisc. One such system was developed by Lucasfilm, the forward-thinking George Lucas. Lucasfilm kind of formed an offshoot of Lucasfilm, LucasArts, a company called DroidWorks, and they produced a system, a nonlinear video editing system, powered by LaserDisc called EditDroid. Now, to understand editing and video editing and how bad it was in many ways, how kludgy and user-unfriendly and what EditDroid was trying to solve, I think we have to go back. We have to go back before even videotape existed to early television, early live television. We, now, we, we think of television today as something we can record, we've got our DVRs, Television programs are rebroadcast, they're put into syndication, different places of the country, you know, we'll rerun Judge Judy at 3 a.m. in the morning. But early television was thought of as a live medium. You get a bunch of people on a television set, you have multiple cameras, which shoot them at the same time, and and then that's broadcast live out to people. And the first way of recording that was a technology called kinescope. And a kinescope is basically a, a special television that a 16 or 35 millimeter camera is pointed at. The camera has a special shutter that allows it to record the video monitor, the television, and basically make a film recording of the television, of the TV show. You would go and you would take that film And you would take it to another television station, maybe across the country, and there would be a reverse process. You would have a thing called a film chain. And basically what a film chain is, is it's a video camera, and there's a specialized projector, which is projecting the film into a special lens array that's in front of the video camera and projecting that that 
35 or 16 millimeter kinescope into the video camera from the video camera that goes out to the local people. It's broadcast out to the local, well, at that point, it was broadcast out on uh, the airwaves. So, kinescopes, not that was before video, there was kinescopes. And, and kinescopes were the the medium of recording in the 40s and the 50s and into the late 60s. There were many smaller television stations which did not upgrade to the video systems, still used film chains, still used kinescopes into the late 60s. Videotape arrived in the 50s and the first video editing systems, the first way you'd edit video was you you would actually physically edit video. This wasn't really done a lot. What you would do is you would put this special fluid on the the actual videotape. This was like two inch two inch videotapes, very early videotape. You would it would develop the magnetic impulses on the videotape, which could be examined with a microscope, and then you would use a guillotine splicer to physically edit the tape. And it was very painstaking, and you had to be very careful with joining the tape because there were all kinds of problems. It was usually used to join together multiple sequences, like you'd shoot one sequence, and then you would just do a, a splice to another sequence. It was really, I don't think it was really very frequently used to cut like we, like we edit today between shot, between, you know, close up, wide shot, cut, 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 cut. That was not, that was not the way things were edited very early on. But editing technology developed. It, it continued the, the, the development of videotape technology and video editing technology. It developed throughout the 60s and 70s. It became better, but it still became essentially... Well, video, videotape editing is essentially dubbing. It's dubbing tapes, Okay. The way the video, all videotape editing basically worked was that you had uh, multiple video decks and you could, and you don't, and we think about video decks as like a VHS, like a cartridge. These were reel to reel tape decks and you would have multiple video decks with the source information, your raw footage. Then you would have one video deck that had the, was the record deck and basically you would play the the source, and then you would record it. in In the old VHS days, we called it uh, crash editing, where you would press play on the source and then record. And then, when you got to the point where you wanted to stop the recorder, you'd press pause, and then you would queue up the the tape to the next shot or the next area you wanted to to, to record, and Press play and then press record on the record deck, and so on and so forth. Rinse, wash, and repeat. And it's and this and tape editing is called linear editing. It's because you're laying down tape, you're dubbing tape, and it's very laborious. Early on, they developed computers to edit controllers to create an edit decision list. What you would do is you'd go through the tape and you'd say, okay, we want from this from 1 minute 5 seconds to 1 minute 20 seconds. Okay, that's one edit decision list. And, then, and, then, and so you'd make this list, and then at the very end, you would have a, a, a computer queue up the source decks 
and queue up the record decks and build your edit shot by shot. If you had effects, maybe you could have, uh, you know, again, in the 70s, they, they began to develop effects consoles and wait, ways to do dissolves and, and very, very primitive basic effects, but it was still very primitive. It was very basic and it was, it was not creative. Now, film editing, as opposed to video editing, film editing is actually inherently nonlinear. And with, with film editing, you have these strips of film, and then you have these strips of, of audio tape that you, you transfer to what's called mag strip. So it's like, it's like sprocketed magnetic tape. So you've got your picture on a film strip, you've got the strips of, of magnetic tape, you've got your picture and your sound, and you can, you know, paste these up on, on the wall. You can organize things in a, in a physical manner and you can, and it's very agile, you know. I mean, to the modern, to the modern editor who's used to, you know, computers and, you know, hours and hours of, of footage, you know, at their fingertips, you know, it, it seems like it's not agile, but, but as opposed to, to videotape, I mean, film is very, again, you can jump in and jump out. You can cut things. You can, you can cut the tape. You can cut your, your film in the middle and jam in a shot. You can jam in the audio, jam in here. I mean, the, the best you could do with videotape is you could do insert editing. You could, you could jump into a video and you could basically dub over part of it. But the, but the, the, the edit, the, 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 the picture and sound on either side of that edit, they don't, they don't kind of ripple over. You know, imagine if you, you cut film and you cut in a shot, things kind of move and it's organic and it's a lot more agile and easier to edit as opposed to video, which is just, as I said, and you just think it was just dubbing tape, just laying down a track. You can lay, you can, you can dub over part of it, but it's not as easy. And people knew it. I mean, from the very beginning, it's just, it's kind of like DOS versus Windows and Mac, you know, the graphical user interface. I mean, th- think about the, a DOS computer and how unfriendly it is and this command line and having to go through it. And then compared to a Windows computer, which is kind of like this virtual desktop, which is where you can organize files and you can organize things very much like emulating a, a physical desktop full of papers and, and everything. But with a digital desktop, you can, again, you can have thousands of files and folders and the ease of organization and everything. And the dream of, of nonlinear video editing, which is kind of like emulating what a film editor can do, but then taking the best of the film editor's way of, you know, just being very agile. But even film editing has its drawbacks in that you're in a physical world. It's just like papers on a desk. You can have you can have a bunch of papers on a desk, but imagine searching for something as opposed to having thousands of files on a disk. You could search for a, a name, search for a term. You could just go through that search. You could search thousands and thousands of files. It would take you days, weeks, months to search uh, a stack of papers on a desk. So imagine that agility. Imagine you're looking for a shot, a shot that's in a on a roll of film in a box that you've got to go and find. You've got to take that box off the shelf and you've got to unroll that film and you got to look at, oh, that's the wrong shot. You got to go back. Now imagine a, a video editing system, a nonlinear video editing system, a computer database 
where you log all of your shots, you keep everything organized, and at your fingertips, you can organize everything. You can, you can find exactly the shot that you want because you've logged it, hopefully. <laughs> hopefully you've got everything logged. And so you can, you can marry the agility of film with the endless possibilities of a computer. Also, you can have multiple sequences. With a film edit, okay, of course, you could be very agile, but, but you're in the physical world. If you want to try something else, you've got to pull it all apart. You've got to get more film. With digital, you can try multiple edits. You can try, just like a, a word processing document, you can try multiple different versions. You could save all your different revisions in different files. You can have almost a, a seemingly infinite amount of, of revisions. And so you, you can imagine how, uh, how that could foster a kind of a creativity. You know, also film, again, is a physical medium. It breaks down eventually. You start touching it with your fingers. Things get dirty. You know, the dream of, of digital video was that you could infinite, infinite different versions. And it's just, it's just bits and bytes. It's just org, just like, again, like a word processing file. Now, nonlinear editing actually goes back to the 70s, because everybody knew that was the next step. The CBS Memorex experiment, CMX, an early video editing project, a group of companies come together, CBS and Memorex, come together to create a video editing, a, a, a linear editor, an, an edit controller. You have a bunch of decks, and you have this big CMX machine, and it can organize your edit, build your edit one cue at a time. But but even in the early 70s, CMX was experimenting with nonlinear video editing. They had a the CMX 600, uh, <laughs> a a disc that was the size of a washing machine that held about five minutes of NTSC video. It held about four minutes of PAL video, apparently. And you could you could do, and it was black and white. And it was low quality. You could you could apparently string these string these washing machines together and get about thirty minutes of total video. Wow! But even then, it was again the idea was that you create your edit on this nonlinear editor and then you go to the the, the tape based linear editor and and take that edit decision list and then you you have that uh, that 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 linear tape editor. Build your build your actual finished edit. So everybody knew that that nonlinear was a dream, but how to accomplish that with the in the 1970s with the the kind of hard drive technology with the limits of computer and hard drive technology, it was it was difficult. It was difficult. So for many years there were. Many experiments that companies were engaging in to try to create a nonlinear editor. But it didn't really blossom. The idea of being able to do this in a realistic application that actual editors could use that was somehow viable didn't really come to fruition until the early 1980s. And as I said earlier, one of the companies that was involved with doing that was George Lucas, Lucasfilm, and his Droid Works offshoot, and the Edit Droid.
The edit droid was said to have been born out of George Lucas's interest in speeding up editing, making editing faster. Apparently, when he was editing the, the Star Wars films, he felt the, the process was, was cumbersome. He felt it was disorganized. And also, George Lucas was, according to Ben Burt, a kind of person who liked to try out a lot of different things. He liked to have a, a lot of different options. So the idea of a computerized editing system, which could keep track of all of your shots, which could provide seemingly, you know, infinite opportunities to explore and to experiment the edit, and that kind of took out, you know, all of the, the physical things which kind of stood in your way to just keep everything kind of, you know, take the film out of it and just have a, a beautiful, clean computer screen that you were sitting in front of. That was the dream. And so initially there were, there were two systems. There was going to be audio droid, which was going to be an earlier, um, digital audio workstation just for, for editing audio. And then there was going to be edit droid for picture and sound. But eventually edit droid was the, the, the project which actually developed and, uh, blossomed. And, they, they, they took a lot of feedback from, from actual editors about what they wanted. Cause, cause the idea of Editroid was to kind of ease editors into using digital editors. Because again, video editing, you know, the CMX world, the linear tape editing, again, it was, it was very, it was like, uh, you were in front of a console. You were doing a paper edit. You were constantly dealing with, with time code and just, Put, putting things, you know, just, 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 just code, just number code or this, this seconds and minutes and frames and, and all of this stuff. And of course, there was a lot of that stuff in, in film editing as well. But a lot of film editing was dealing with the actual film in front of these wonderful machines called chems, called flatbeds, which had a, a beautiful screen. And it was, it was very easy and, and agile to, to use and, and, and work once you kind of figured everything out. And so the idea of the Editroid was to kind of emulate this. It had the, the Editroid console. They took a lot of research and a lot of the controls were kind of meant to emulate the chem controls. The, the, the levers and the switches, the way you would fast forward and, and rewind the video. And it had these screens, but it looked like something out of like Star Wars. It looked, I mean, the, the, the pictures, you know, are, are really kind of, they're banking on the, the whole Lucasfilm name, you know, the, the, the benchmark that Lucasfilm kind of set for technical innovation and, and excellence in the, the whole Star Wars film. They kind of brought that kind of marketing, marketing angle to the edit droid. And so the edit droid, basically it had this, it had one screen with the source deck, with the, the, the video source. It wasn't a deck, it was laser of course. Had another screen with the record, with the actual, what, what your footage was. And another computer screen that actually showed you your timeline, like on modern computers, like a timeline of, of audio and, and video. It had two audio tracks. And one video track, apparently. And this, all of this stuff was powered by a group of laser discs. At least two. 
According to the engineers, they had calculated that you needed between three and four laser discs to be able to do a live preview of any edit that you create. A live preview. A live, not, not, not like a, not like linear taping, like CMX, like you type in all of these time codes and then it, it's, it lays down the tape and then you want to go change something. Okay. You got to go through, you got to do everything. You got to lay it down again. No, you could, you could have multiple sequences, multiple different cuts and you could instantly call up these different versions, these different cuts. And what would happen with the edit droid is it would cut between these different laser discs. And the laser discs, you know, were, were CAV laser, the, the, the format CAV, CAV allows you to really quickly jump across different frames in this 30 minutes worth of video. And again, you can build up. And so if you have two or more decks, you could in real time, it's kind of in a, in a, in an analog way, replicating what we can do with computers now, with basically, which is have video files on your computer and you can take that into Premiere or Final Cut Pro or iMovie and you can call that up and you can instantly start editing things in a non-destructive way and you can call up multiple different versions of your project. Again, this was, this was kind of agility and, and something that, again, we take it for granted, but in the early 80s with linear tape editing, kind of taking the best of video editing and the best of film and bringing it into this, this, this edit droid with this kind of interface that was geared toward film editors with the, the kind of, the, the whole edit droid screen and everything was kind of, it was meant to emulate a kind of a, a digital virtual version of uh, a film editing turn, uh, flatbed film editing chem. It was meant to just kind of emulate that. There was nothing like it out there. And it was laserdisc and it was futuristic and it blew people away. It was demonstrated at the 1984 NAB conference, the National Association of Broadcasters, where everybody takes their new gadgets and their, their new wares. And there were a lot of, there was competition, you know. There were other systems that were trying to kind of approximate the nonlinear video editing experience at that time. There was another company called Montage who stuck around for many, many, many years. Montage went into the 90s. And they became quite popular. But Montage was using 17 tape decks. <laughs> 17 tape decks with the exact same information on the, the exact same video on all these decks. And like the Laserdisc, it was, you know, again, pro- approximating being able to nonlinear, you know, edit anything and, and immediately cue a, a, a sequence up and change things around in real time just with a bunch of, you know, over a dozen tape decks. Editroid had actually been, been planned to, to use, to use, uh, tape decks, but tape was slow. You know, you needed that many, that many tape decks, 17 tape decks to approximate what you could get with just a few CAV laser discs, which seek really fast. I mean, they're not, I mean, they're not milliseconds, but they're seconds. Within seconds, you can get to right across the disc. And there was actually also another, 
another system which used laser discs. They there were I think there were a couple. There was um a company uh, a post production house called Pacific. They they had an in-house laser disc editing suite. And I don't know if it was somehow associated with Editroid or had the, the technology or was a competitor. I mean, it was proprietary in-house. I don't think it was was launched as a commercial product in the way that Editroid was. But I mean, Editroid had stiff competition. You know, there there are dozens and dozens, hundred different nonlinear video editing systems over the years that have come and gone. Uh, their names, you know, you nobody barely even remembers them. There was a system called Touch Vision, which was, I think, popular in music videos. It was used to cut the Madonna Truth or Dare film, concert film, and it used just like a bank of videotapes as well. Touch Vision was was uh, another kind of popular name. Montage was used to actually cut to Full Metal Jacket, Stanley Kubrick's Full Metal Jacket. It was uh, a pioneering use of Nonlinear video editing. But again, I think it was just using multiple decks to just assemble an edit of the film, which was then, uh, which was then conformed. Uh, you would, you would get negative cutters who would actually cut the negative film, you know, because I mean, that's what Editroid was about. Editroid was designed to shoot films. You would have this 30 frame per second video. You'd cut the sequence on Editroid. Once you were satisfied with it, Editroid could could translate the 30 frames per second video into 24 frames per second. You would it, it could find out where that frame was, and so you'd then generate the the 24 frames per second edit, and then you'd cut the negative to that, and that's how you'd create your finished program. Editroid was designed to edit feature films, but I I'm not sure if a feature film was ever edited using the system. It found its primary application in television because of the speed at which you could do the edit. And it was, there, there were uh, certain companies like Lorimar and, and other people who kind of, you know, rented systems like the Editroid and they used them out on their shows. They were kind of the guinea pigs of the thing. And, but there were a lot of downsides to the Editroid. I mean, the the whole the, I mean the, one of the big things was laserdiscs. I mean that's that's really I mean I think everybody involved with the Editroid would agree that was one of the things that that probably killed the system is that they were so married to laserdisc. Everybody involved with Editroid banked on there being these widely available or at least somehow available laserdisc recorders that would allow someone with an Editroid system to copy their, their material, copy their media, do it themselves to make a recordable copy. And that, that never really happened within a satisfactory time frame. There, I mean, recordable Laserdisc, there, th- that technology was being developed, being developed by Panasonic, being developed by Pioneer, but it didn't happen quick enough to really save Editroid. There were, there were uh, Laserdisc companies, there were pressing companies like uh, Technics, uh, which which uh, had these things where they would offer to, to transfer uh, material, do the film to tape transfer, and then do a do a, a tape to Laserdisc transfer. 
and overnight it to you for like a couple hundred dollars, you know, and stuff like that. But it was, it was difficult to get your stuff on a laser. And not only you, do you have to get your stuff on a laser disc, you don't, ha- you, no, you don't, you don't need to get it on a laser disc. You have to get it on laser discs. You have to have two or more identical laser discs. And apparently that was a big problem to get a laser disc, which where the frame started at the exact timestamp to get to get two or more identical laser discs this was not really what the laser disc format was designed to do this kind of uh, non-linear editing so there were all of these these drawbacks to using laser discs to try to mimic you know what you can do today with hard drives i mean the sun computers that powered the editroid i mean they had a huge 80 megabyte hard drive. I mean, the, the, there was no, there was no hard drive space. And, but toward the late 80s and the early 90s, companies like Avid began to be born. Companies who were able to, to resolve the, the engineering problems and the new hard drive technology began to become available. And once, once that stuff started happening, Systems like the Edit Droid became obsolete overnight. You didn't have to deal with all of the hassles that Edit Droid entailed. By the, the, the late 80s and the, the early 90s, George Lucas had invested almost $40 million into the Edit Droid project. Lucasfilm had a lot of experimental divisions, had a lot of different divisions. They had a, a whole digital animation division called Pixar. Lucasfilm were the originators of Pixar. And they sold Pixar off to Steve Jobs. And they eventually sold Edit off to Avid in 1993. And uh, so from then, from then on, it was in the 90s, it was Avid. It was Premiere, it was Media 100, it was the, the Video Toaster on the Amiga. All of these systems which were utilizing computer hard drive storage to edit digitized video. And Edit Droid, Edit Droid was kind of forgotten. There's a great documentary on the making of Edit Droid. It's called Edit Droid. Rise and Fall, Edit Droid Rise and Fall by Tom Van Klingeren. It's, it's a great documentary. It's, it's actually on YouTube and I think on Vimeo and some other streaming services. And it falls around one of the chief designers of the Edit Droid. It interviews Ben Burt. It interviews some of the people who had experience with working with Edit Droid. The end of the of the movie is kind of sad because the whole the whole documentary is you were telling the story of the Edit Droid while this chief designer of Edit Droid is is driving to Lucasfilm and they go into the Lucasfilm storage and he tries to to pull out of storage a an Edit Droid uh, video unit and and a workstation and pieces of the Edit Droid are in storage but it's just you can't put it together you know. There were only apparently 24 edit droids ever sold. It was a very, a very small scale product, mainly used in television. It was used in Young Indiana Jones. 
Lucasfilm never used it in a feature film. They did use it in Young Indiana Jones, and the speed and agility, according to Ben Burtt, really helped, were, became an asset in making the Young Indiana Jones series, which took many years to make. Young Indiana Jones was really uh, a landmark television series with the, the the kind of quality of the, the special effects. I mean, it was a big, you know, Young Indiana Jones, that, that television show, it's like HBO level stuff. You know, if, if Young Indiana Jones was coming out today, it'd be like Game of Thrones or something like that. It's that level of production and that level of, of quality. But it was, it was such a sad moment in that documentary where they're trying to reconstruct at least one edit droid and it's not possible. You know, it's like you can never go home. You can never reconstruct the past completely. But I mean, the legacy of the edit droid lives on. I, I don't think you can say, okay, the letter, the, the, the edit droid was the, the first nonlinear video editor and it, it blazed a, a trail. And, you know, even in the newest version of Final Cut Pro and Premiere, you can see the edit droid, you know, but I mean, you can, because it's not like that because there were many systems that were similar to the edit droid. You know, everybody was working toward trying to emulate film editing digitally taking the best of film, taking the best of video, adding adding digital video into the mix. And so it was just the inevitable, it's just kind of going from DOS to a graphical user interface. You know, of course, you can say, okay, maybe there's a piece of it, Xerox Park, that Apple looked at the Xerox Park project and took the GUI, and then Microsoft took the GUI from Apple and developed Windows and yes and no, but then there's, there's all other kind of companies. You, you know, you kind of think, what was Atari doing? What was, what were all companies doing with, everybody was developing their own graphical user interface. Everybody knew that that was the future. Nobody thought that the future was forever going to be typing prompts into a, into a black and white screen, into a black and amber screen. You know, just like nobody in the seventies thought that the future was just looking at a, at a boring list of edit decision lists. Okay, okay. But again, the, the money and the time and the manpower that Lucasfilm put behind Edit Droid, I still think that you can feel elements of that, you know, in the modern nonlinear digital video editing era. And in other ways, the, the legacy of the edit droid is that in 2013, it actually provided us with another peek at some footage from Return of the Jedi. In 2013, a demo disc, one of the demo discs that was used to demonstrate edit droid, a demo disc with footage from Return of the Jedi showed up on eBay. And somebody bought that disc for $700 and they were shocked. They were shocked and stunned because there were all of this, there was this raw footage from Return of the Jedi used in a, in a, an editing demonstration from Edit Droid. And it provided an, an incredible look at some of this, just this raw footage of, of the X-Wing being repaired and and Yoda and and all of this in, in incredible stuff 
that we'd never seen before. That footage has now been widely disseminated on YouTube and, and Vimeo and all kinds of other streaming services. And it's an incredible little peek into, uh, into, into, into Jedi and some more footage. Again, some more fun stuff out there. It's, uh, you know, some of it has sound, some of it doesn't, some of it doesn't, some of it's silent. But again, uh, the, the edit droid was a, it gave us a little bit of a gift of some additional footage there. So it came back in some way and said, hello. <laughs> hey, you, you forgot about me, but here's, here's a little bit of a gift. Here's some, uh, here's some stuff you've never seen before. You're welcome. Please don't forget about me. <laughs> Love edit droid. So I want to thank you for listening to my little trip down video editing lane. And I, I want to thank uh, Tom Van Klingeren for releasing his Edit Droid documentary on YouTube. That was one of the sources which I derived a lot of information from. That's Edit Droid Rise and Fall. I also got a lot of information from these books that were written by John Buck. Timeline, Volume 1 and 2. And they're available on Amazon. And Timeline is a, his- it's a history of editing. It's this anecdotal a history of editing and uh, the, these 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 books are indispensable if you're interested in the the really nuts and bolts technical aspects that he said she said of editing technologies over the year indispensable uh, i got a lot of information about edit and other systems from those books john buck timeline volume one and two so until next time this is john Arhan telling you Keep spinning those discs. Have a great day.